work. It's your lazy ass up. I've been working since I was 10 years old. I got my journeyman's license when I was 14 years old. Hell, I've been a foreman since I was 16 years old. Come on now. Hell, my grandfather's name was Work. Go ahead and finish that up. We gotta get back. You even know what a tape measure is? Hey. You even know what a fucking skill saw is? We gotta work. Come on.
park explorer, bathroom attendant, college party sexual, massage detective, naked daddy, homo gangster dick, submissive construction worker, pussy monster, Mike's hard cock, retail hidden cam, Walmart, and latinoass.org. Then you may have in fact allowed me to thrive in our new economy despite my hardships, my oppression. And I would like to thank you very kindly for that. I'm running super behind. I've been using this app to help me wake up, and it didn't. So I'm at my other job right now. I'm at Jimmy John's. I have to use their Wi-Fi to call you on Zoom right now because I'm ran out of cricket minutes. I guess some people can just afford to work one job and have unlimited data and not live in constant precarity and not have to worry about how they're going to wake up. So I'm just making a sub bowl for my lunch right now because of my no budget. So I should be there in a few hours. See you soon. The year is 2012. I'm a failing English student. I'm 700 pounds into a 1,000 pound overdraft. I sleep until three in the afternoon every day. When I wake up, I walk to the second-hand bookstore and buy five or six sci-fi or fantasy paperbacks. Michael Moorcock, Abraham Merritt, Frederick Pohl, Ursula Le Guin, before finding a restaurant to eat in alone. I go home and crawl into my unmade and very often unsheeted bed and browse Ask Reddit threads, keeping a few not-safe-for-work subreddits open in separate tabs until three in the morning. At three, I rouse myself from my increasingly unfresh mattress and prowl into the stony darkness of the night. In the orange still life of the streetlights, all the trees look like museum exhibits, and the flint in the walls of all the buildings exudes a caveman loneliness. Past rocket-age computer and electronics repair and the evangelical church of the universal science of Christ, I arrive at Okabasi Pizza and Chicken. The hot air and scent of greasy fried food hits my face as I enter, and I breathe in the deep primordial warmth. Huge machines hum and vibrate with shells of chicken. A notice on the wall gives a hygiene rating of three out of five. Good enough. My regular order is a chicken hash brown burger stack with a side order of cheesy chips doused in salt and vinegar. Other than the bookshop, this is the only human interaction I've had for a week. Having purchased my food, I step into the cold black night. I have a vision of a million years ago. A caveman throws a bone into the fire. When it lands in a 2001 style jump cut, I'm working in a fast food orbital satellite pod. The year is 2525. Huge machines hum and vibrate. The airlock is controlled by a hydraulic mechanism caked with thick yellow oil. Through the reinforced graphene porthole, all the stars are twinkling. Venusian cowburgers are frying on an astral grill. We import our drinks from Saturn's ring. In the dark and depthless vacuum, the space truckers come and go, but there is always an oasis to be found of food, warmth, light, and machinery. Hygiene rating, two out of five. Good enough.
be careful about becoming a regular anywhere. At every service job I've worked, many of the regulars are reviled by the staff because they demand increasingly personalized and specific requests, all while thinking they're your best friend. Every single regular at every job I've ever had except two made me feel like I was working off bad karma. I could not be more thankful for my Guggenheim Fellowship. 90 grand. Now I don't have to work that shitty old job anymore. I can focus on my work my very important and culturally relevant artwork. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. It's not like I ever paid rent or anything like that, but I needed to work at a coffee shop just for extra cash, you know, for ketamine and Percocets and tranny chasing. The essentials of life, basically. Nevertheless, it was a soul-sucking job. I had to work an entire 15 hours a fucking week we didn't even have a union, goddammit. I didn't always know that I was an artist. It wasn't until one day that I was supporting trans lives and sex workers all in one fell swoop by ferociously jerking my dick off to a big black cock-wielding, big tit-having beauty getting sucked off by the porn princess Emily Willis that I accidentally shot a load of my own cum into my mouth. It was disgusting and rancid, of course, but when I spit it out, it landed upon a sheet of white paper. I realized right then and there that the spittle jism produced a form and image that said a lot, so much, about the world that we lived in. Then and there, I knew what the work was. I'm an artist. Spittle and jism are my materials. My work is highly complex, highly philosophical even. Every day, I jizz into my own mouth. And then I use that jizz to mix with my spit, and then I spit the spittle jism onto the canvas, taking the brush and stroking the fluidy form onto the paper. They produce images that are abstract, but so suggestive and so highly meaningful. The work has to be meaningful, you see. This work, it's about matter and being. It's deep, it's layered. It's political, it's social, it's cultural. It has to be all these things at the same time. Demon spit painting number one is generally considered to be the masterpiece at this point of my career. It currently hangs at the MoMA and was purchased by none other than the Hollywood star Will Smith. He supports black people and he pays extremely well. There is a whole bidding war over the spittle jism paintings now. My career has been ignited and there is no one that can stop me from producing the work. Everywhere I go, people tell me they love me, that they love my work. Baby, I'm a master. I am one of the greats. Everyone is sucking me off now. I'm Jesus.
work until I run out of jizz. My work can go on forever. It's so important. It's so important to be doing this work. So the work, the work, the work, doing the work. I think about it all the time. I'm almost 40, slightly more than a decade younger than my dad was when he decided to stop running our car dealership, stop doing the work. He'd run small businesses most of his life, varying degrees of success, but the good outweighed the bad. He didn't work too hard. Never had to beat his own dick off, as he, he put it. What a colorful turn of phrase. But, but a franchise car dealership, that was the big time. Sales were strong, 1990, 1991, 300% over planning volume, quota, all that shit. But he ran a ridiculously lean operation, for which he was often the only salesperson. And suddenly he had to do hard work, as well as smart work. So he did what many other thickly bearded, prophetically minded men in those circumstances would have done. He had a religious revelation during which he was informed by the world spirit that he would never have to work again. He could instead subsist off the fat of the land. And he spent the last three decades of his life, such as they were, being ministered to by various sweeties, sugar mamas he met through Yahoo personally. Before ending his run in a very nice house in the great state of Montana, the mountain state cohabitating with the sober-minded woman he dated in high school. My father, in other words, elected to stop doing the work. The work he'd done, whether fair or foul, gave him a nice little nest egg that he then sunk into a Chrysler dealership at the very, very bottom, the very, like, the bottom had fallen out of the domestic auto industry. Perhaps chastened by my mother, who saw him as sort of a small-time hustler, he decided to, to actually work, to go legit. But in the final analysis, that juice wasn't worth the squeeze, and the prospect of doing nothing forever. Well, that was just way more tempting than doing something for a while. Now, as I approach 40, will I choose to retire from life itself in a decade or so? Will I stop doing the work? Nah, that won't be my fate. I learned to hustle from my father, but my mother and her fucking family of fucking idiot immigrant grandparents, parents, they subjected me to the grind. The 2022 remote work equivalent of hewing wood and drawing water. To such an extent that I couldn't work otherwise if I tried. Mantras such as rise and grind, 40 hours a week, I remember my first job echoing my brain pain. Alas, 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 I'm doomed to remain the worker amidst all these half-hearted and half-assed creators who do the work content creator, literal head of content at a company building the fun houses in which thought leaders and other notables reside. Well, that's fine and dandy. I say okay by me. Every prospect pleases and only man is vile.
it's Josh. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to make it in today. Uh, I can't fucking. Uh, I can't find a babysitter for my kid. Like it's spring break, and my kid's not going to school this week. And so the original babysitter is gone. She's in fucking St. Petersburg for spring break. She recommends another babysitter. The other babysitter tested positive for COVID-19. My hands are tied. Uh, fucking, you know, uh, the pro- you know, the problem is the kid's fucking mother is wasn't here. And we've argued about this last. And, uh, and uh, the doctor said that I'm waiting for the other kidney stone to pass. It should be any day now. Incredible pain. Uh, there's a pot that's coming from the shop for my car. The the uh, mechanic says the pot should be here and uh, the spring break. And uh, and I'm not. I'm just gonna probably not make it in tomorrow either. So I would plan for that. Hey, Birdo, what's up? You got a sec to chat? Okay, super cool. First, I just want to say I think it's so rad that you finally started a human resources department here at Ghost Jail. Having an HR department is going to go such a long way in making sure our workforce is just mega high morale. Anyway, it's been three months, and you know what that means. It's time for your performance review. But before we get into all that, I want to see if you had a chance to read that Workplace Mindset book I recommended. Oh, the name? Here, let me write that down. It's called You Are a No Bullshit Tough as Fuck Goddess, a field guide to embracing your office ninja. You really have to read it. It's going to give you so many tips on fitting into the culture here at the Ghost Jail Human Resources Department. Okay, so let's get to the not-so-fun part of the review. Um, first, I've been meaning to talk to you about your Slack etiquette, and, uh, here, let me show you what I mean. This is a printout of a conversation you had with Jenny in the group Slack. She brought this to my attention a few weeks ago, and frankly, she was a little scared. But I'll show you. You see, you did it wrong here. When you two agreed on how to divide up that week's emails, she said, awesome, exclamation point. And you said, sure, period. Now, I know this might not seem like that big of a deal, but I found Jenny crying in the bathroom, worrying you were mad at her. Going forward, can you please make sure to follow up messages with at least one positive emoji reaction face? Okay, thanks, awesome. Um, what's next? Oh, um, so speaking of emails, you got that whole email thing. Now, I didn't know about this, even though I read through all the emails sent in the office over last week, and that's a lot of emails, just so you know. So I only found about this when I went to the bathroom and I heard Emma crying in there. Here, I printed it out. You see this? Any problems jump out at you? Okay, let me give you a hint. There's not a single exclamation point. And I think you can kind of see how that comes off like a little aggressive and weird. Because your punctuation is just so perfect, which is great, don't get me wrong. But it's just so intense, you know? Um, So going forward, I want you to get into the habit of putting at least two exclamation points after each sentence in in your office emails. Here, you see how Emma does it? Um, going forward, if you have it just like that, that would be just amazing balls. Okay, um, oh, the last one. This one's kind of, kind of tough, uh, TBQH. Uh, this last Monday, Bethany asked if you'd be able to cover for her while she took off early and went to her therapy appointment and then took her pimple to the bed for the checkup. 
and you said, um, let me see here, that you were kind of busy and you didn't know if you could do that. Truth be told, I didn't know about this until I found her crying in the bathroom, wondering how she was going to pick up her kid baby's heartworm medication. So, um, going forward, if you can just make sure to show a little empathy regarding these kind of situations, that would be so freaking awesome. And, okay, so that, um, hmm, you know what, now that I'm looking at it, that's, that's kind of three strikes, and more than that, I'm seeing a definite pattern of kind of scary energy, um, so listen, I'm afraid if you want to continue working here as per policy, you're going to need to get on some estrogen hormones and kind of sort of make an appointment for sexual reassignment surgery. I mean, I know that sounds drastic, but you're going to be so happy you got rid of all your toxic male energy. Um, anyway, I'll go ahead and schedule the appointment for you, and babe, I cannot wait to see your glow up. Okay, bye. Think of all the people working from home, doing their office job on a workbook so graciously provided to them by their employers. A machine brimming with spyware, a key logger. It's taking screenshots at regular and irregular intervals while recording audio and even video whenever it's on. Probably even after it's shut down and left in the upright position. That workbook helps create the notion of being on bad screen from morning until afternoon, then finally having access to good screen on the other side of the living room. And all those unglamorous moments in someone's life being picked up and sent, hopefully to some big data firm, if not elsewhere. Who knows what's in the user agreement everyone scrolls by and just clicks OK on. I mean, everyone's got to eat, right? <laughs> Speaking of eating, yeah, the laptop picks that up, eating alone while watching the same TV series for the third time, quietly sobbing during a sudden respite during the workday, undignified yearnings and sloppy hookups, all just a few feet away from good screen, probably being picked up by bad screen. Just imagine how they'll all feel when a work-from-home taps is trotted out by elected officials in cities where this all happens five days a week. Nineteen-year-old me woke up on a Tuesday morning and rode my bike to my job at the local tourist trap. An educational tourist trap, but a tourist trap nonetheless. I always got there early. I'm that type of person. If you always get there early, you can be as late as you want, as long as you're early. I made my breakfast uh, ramen noodles. I ate my noodles, I smoked my cigarettes, I probably had two cigarettes. I probably smoked a cigarette while I was eating my noodles. And no one was there, not a single soul was around. Usually someone would be outside smoking with me and chatting. 
Nobody was there. I went back inside. Usually someone would be there making coffee. Nobody was there. Not a single soul. Finally, I hear some noise, some talking, and a TV. Everyone is gathered around, eyes glued to the TV on the tall, rolling cart. There was a diverse crew at this tourist trip. Uh, high school kids, college students, retirees, current and ex-military, outdoorsy types, kickers, hicks, National Park Service lesbians, a diverse crew. I step into the room as the second plane hits the second tower. And the first words out of my 19-year-old mouth, without thinking, I laughed and I said, I hope it's an inside job. Now, in hindsight, this is awful. But at the time, to 19-year-old me at least, it was pretty abstract seeing that image on the TV. I might as well have stepped in the room while everyone was watching Die Hard. It didn't make any sense. I don't remember what the immediate reaction to that was. I don't remember at all. It was a hazy time. A few weeks later, I get called into the big boss's office. One thing I do remember is him saying that they don't want my kind at their tourist trip. I, I was... I was encouraged to quit. Found out later that soon after my laugh and comment, they had gone around asking all the employees about me, about what kind of person I was, was I a drug user, I was, was I a political radical, if I'd ever said anything weird to them. I'm a bit embarrassed telling this story, but at the same time I'm not. The world was different back then. Nothing was the same after this. A political rap. Fired because of 9-11. Hey, so I'm not going to make my shift today. I'm still at the pet ER. The veterinarian is saying that Topo Chico definitely has to have another surgery. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm going to pay for this because I'm losing hours right now because I, just, I have no PTO left. And the last time I was home with him during his recovery, you didn't offer any parental leave. You won't let me work from home, which I think is fucked up. And so it just must be nice to be able to pay for your pet to live uh, in this system. And so I'm going to be posting a GoFundMe link for Topo surgery and the group chat. If you wouldn't mind passing that along on his behalf. Thank you. I've been working at Amazon for about six years now, and I've heard a lot about how horrible it is to work here. And it is, just not for the reasons the screens would have you believe. 
the real hell of working for Amazon is not being paid below minimum wage or being overworked to the point of needing to wear a diaper. Neither of those things are true. The pay is good, the work is easy. The real hell is constant pep talks and team meetings that you're forced to attend. They're always tedious, condescending and infantilizing. Often you're told about mundane business goings on in different parts of the organization that have nothing to do with your actual job and you're expected to be excited by those numbers. The real hell of working at Amazon is the workplace evaluation surveys we have to do every few months. They're described as voluntary, but management will basically give you no option but to do it. They will hound you until you do it and basically you have to be a huge prick to get out of it. And then when it comes time for us to see the results of the survey, well the only number I've ever seen is the percentage of people who actually filled out the survey. 97% of our staff completed the survey and that demonstrates that our employees feel confident that their voices can be heard and listened to. Possibly the worst part of working here is to constantly being reminded that we are a team. Blame and praise are always distributed across the team, even if everyone knows who the person fucking up is. It will be presented as, this month the team has been failing to successfully complete task X to a reasonable standard. They often make it seem like decisions as to how the place is run were decided as a team, so that when they inevitably fail, the blame can be collectively absorbed. There's no I in team, but there's no we in there either. Sometimes I wish I was just riveting ship holes for 12 cents an hour. Good morning. What am I doing here? How's it going? I don't know if I can help you find anything. I just want to go home. I hate it here. Oh, you have a good day. Well, same to you. You have a better one to stage. Take care. Hope you enjoy. Have a good day. Hey, how's it going? Have a good night. Take care. We appreciate your business. I'm better than this. 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 I was about 19 when I worked at Walmart with Beth the bioterrorist. Beth was a 56 year old woman who loved the smell of plastic fumes and would go on walks by the warehouses and plastic shops near her house. She'd hop the fences and rummage through the dumpsters, picking out discarded and melted toys to wrap in newspaper and give to her nieces and nephews as birthday gifts. By coincidence, one of the plastic shops was the one I worked at for a week until I cut my hand making snow shovels. Beth and I worked in the apparel section at Walmart and would share the Vicodin and codeine I was buying for my friend Tommy until he broke my arm in a fistfight after I got drunk and fucked his ex-girlfriend on a trampoline on the 4th of July. Beth would pass out in the fitting rooms and I'd have to cover for her telling my manager she was in the bathroom or on her break. She had no filter and would just walk up to couples with their babies and say, that's one ugly ass baby, better luck next time. That was a laugh track in her deranged sitcom. Her employment with Walmart ended after she screamed at a young boy to shut the hell up. He was having some sort of epileptic fit, staring straight ahead and singing I Wanna Dance With Somebody by Whitney Houston and walking into clothing racks without a flinch. 
The last words to our manager were, My love is a souffle, and most of the time it just don't turn out right. I just gotta try again is all. A week later, after she retrieved a pill bottle full of bed bugs from Tommy, she walked into Walmart and opened the bottle in the pocket of an extra-large black winter coat. She walked out like it was nothing. Not long after the incident, I found out Beth had died of an opioid overdose. When I went to her funeral, there must have been a mistake by the mortician or her spirit's true colors forcing their way out, because for the first time since I'd known her, she looked scared. I quit my job at Walmart two weeks after her funeral. The world just wasn't the same without Beth the bioterrorist. Hi, this is a day in the life of a 25-year-old stud working as an intern at the Birdo Center in Nouveau, Chicago. First thing out of stasis at 4 a.m. is 15 minutes of meditation, followed by a steaming glass of Birdo's finest, and I slonk my raw egg suppository before getting oiled up for a game of hoops with the boys at 4.30 sharp. After a conga line to the showers, we rinse down and I get my uber sedan chair conveyed by femboys who serve as a constant reminder to the fate that awaits me if I fail to perform my duties adequately. After a quick stand-up meeting at 7 a.m., we'll hop to a conference room with our product managers, view our sales numbers, arm wrestle, and spar some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Looks like we hit our numbers this week. Then, it's a quick trip downstairs to the subterranean milking chamber for a 12-hour session. After that, my desiccated body is carried back to the rehydration chamber where I'm refueled with Birdo aid until I can walk again. Then I get dressed and head out to Birdo's tap room with the other interns for a night of fun. This was the first night they had a dragon fruit infused man milk tea, and I absolutely loved it. And began spachata all night. Then, a sedan chair back to my place. The radioactive embers looked brilliant tonight. Exhausted, the slaves would tuck me into my cryostasis chamber before I slipped to sleep for another day of hard work. Thanks for watching. Hey, 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 hey. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's Josh. Listen, uh, I'm not going to make it in this morning. Uh, fucking, uh, that ER all last night with my mother, that thing that's been bothering her has come back in the <clears throat> double park behind me and I saw him banging on doors I called a police <coughs> and then I, the fucking tow truck driver gets lost and uh, I'm, I'm at, I got a new I'm arguing at the pharmacy I got a new pharmacist and I tell him I say there's going to be a lawsuit with the prescription <coughs> and um, the, my, my fucking kid's dog chewed through my the, the knee brace is, is, that I use at work it's unusable the dog chewed the knee brace, and uh, I told you I'm not willing to do that to my body. I'm not willing to work without that knee brace. Babysitter, hands are tied. Uh, listen, <clears throat> we, uh, we're just going to have to call this one on, bro. I'm sorry. Hey, folks. Jamie here. You know, people always ask me, Jamie, what do you do? The real question is, what don't I do? And the answer to that question is work. Let me teach you broke losers a little something about business success. 
The first thing you need to focus on is finding opportunities for arbitrage, inefficiencies in markets that you can capitalize on. The second thing you need to do is start saying words like arbitrage and pronouncing finance, finance. Uh, third, you need to start shopping for a mega yacht so you and all your new bitches can sail comfortably from Santorini to Sag Harbor to St. Bart's. The bitter truth is that the boomers were right. You need to just walk in there with a copy of your resume, shake the CEO's hand, and ask for a job. Fake it till you make it. Work smarter, not harder. Or just don't work at all. Start sleeping with one or more of your superiors. Collect blackmail on everyone at the company. Embezzle funds. Trade on insider information. Steal toilet paper from your office. This is how the rich get richer. We make our coffee at home. A little background on me. I got my start selling drugs to college dumbasses in Boston. Then I worked for a defense contractor until I realized I could really scam some people in New York City. So I moved to the Upper East Side and broke into the fashion industry. Fashion was great because I just got my boss to fall in love with me and start paying me to stay home and pay me more than anyone else at the company for nothing. Then she got fired, so I got into the art business. I was a uh, client liaison to the rich and famous, selling priceless works of art, drinking so much champagne that six years later I'm still sick of champagne. That was cool, I suppose, except for the time that a 70-year-old Jewish billionaire roofied me in his apartment. Don't worry, I got away because I was already on more drugs than Jordan Belford in the 90s, so it was just a drop in the ocean. Next, I got in the jewelry business and I started making some serious money. That was all well and good until some Romani gypsy stole two fucking million dollars worth of diamonds from me. That day I learned a valuable lesson. Be the guy who steals the diamonds. So I decided to stop being so honest and moral and I got into importing uh, caviar from Russia. That was fun too, but again, I ate so much caviar that I got sick of it. Uh, then I turned 30 and realized it's time to retire. So I moved to Florida and started focusing on what really matters in life, golf and yacht ownership. The truth is, I wish I had a real career, like law or finance, but then I wouldn't have time to play polo and drink martinis. By now, I'm sure you've realized that everything in my life is unsustainable and too precarious to get a good night's sleep without enough drugs to kill a Hanoverian stallion, but I guess the one thing I'm proud of is the fact that I made my way into these opaque, nepotistic industries without any help from my family. I actually think nepotism is good, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't resent my former colleagues and business partners who didn't have to work. They were just doing it with me for prestige. What I've taken away from all of this is that appearances really do matter. If you really want my advice, save up for a Rolex, a Brioni suit, a couple Hermes ties, and some Berluti Oxfords, then come back and I'll cut you in on my latest scam. There is always dignity in an honest day's work, but there's so much more to gain if you drop the honesty. I didn't put much thought into my future. Uh, I feel like genetically, I don't have the most practical mind when it comes to uh, money making and long-term job investments. So oh, I took six years getting a bachelor's degree in English at three different colleges, um, planning on being a professor.
won't go into the whole story of how it started, but from my late teens to my late 20s, uh, I stole shit and sold it online for a living. That was my full-time job. It wasn't any type of organized crime or gang thing. It was, it was pretty petty in scale, but big enough that I made a decent living. I was selling everything from sports equipment, kitchen appliances, Dyson vacuums, brass pumps, just all sorts of shit. Eventually, uh, it caught up with me and police were hanging out in front of my parents' place. My mom was uh, real upset, you know, justifiably. Was freaking out like I was gonna end up in jail for life. She asked me, what are you gonna do with yourself? How are you gonna make a living? And uh, I told her, be an artist. I don't think that I even meant it when I said it, you know, it's just, just kind of popped out of my mouth. But little by little, I worked to make it true. At the time, though, it felt like a, a far off dream, just grasping at straws, trying to convince her and myself that I had some sort of plan. But she wasn't convinced. She went and got this box. Uh, she'd been saving it for, for many years. And, it was full of, you know, quote-unquote drawings that I'd, that I'd made. Uh, she brought them out and kind of threw them at me and said, you're not an artist, you're mentally ill, and this is just how you cope. From her perspective, I, I could see how it looked because the way I was drawing, I'd kill a whole pen on a sheet of paper, just, you know, making one drawing after another after another. soaked in ink, like a black or blue, scribbly monochrome. It looked like, uh, like I had that shit called graphomania. Uh, but you know, for me, as I was making the drawings, I could see every single one in my mind, even though they kind of vanished into the, into the mess. Uh, as I made them. So, you know, if there was hundreds and hundreds of sheets that represented thousands of drawings to me, so I thought, fuck it, man. I'll, I'm gonna stick with this and and uh, and I'll get there. And by the grace of God, I have. You know, now I make art for a living. And sometimes it kind of almost feels like I am stealing still. But I don't know. I think the art is what brought me to God. Cause at its best, you feel like a channel, like a spirit just flowing through it, coming out through your hand or or whatever the medium is. But Mostly for me, it's painting. And you know, even when that channel feels blocked, uh, honest, like attempt to conjure it, uh, can really speak to the human condition. Like in that failure, you can you can see that someone's really trying to get there. You know, really trying to bring something out of themselves. And uh, I think that does have value. You know, I think that's that's a, that's a real blessing. So I won't be in tonight because I took the wrong meds again by mistake. So I went home early from my other job at Jimmy John's. I was having auditory hallucinations and was hearing this very male voice telling me to smile and it was fucking freaking me out. So I'm. Do you want to um, do another shot with me? <laughs> so 
I don't know. I don't know. It must be nice to be neuronormative and not have five or less prescriptions that interact fucking weird on a day and day basis. But here we are, and at any rate, I should be even killed tomorrow. So I will see you then. Bye. You know, you'd look kind of cute if you just smiled sometimes. If you speak English, then you've heard one of these stupid feminist self-care bits about, like, you know, you know give yourself a cookie, uh, you, you got out of bed this morning, you're a superhero. We've, we've all heard this bullshit. And this is putrid. We all know that this is their utopia. And they have no explanation why things get worse every day, etc. Why all this. But, but who, who fucking cares? There's a real version of this. And if you're listening to this, you, you would probably compare yourself very unfavorably to your parents, your grandparents. You know, my, my, my grandpa dropped out, started working at 13, built his own house, served in the war a patriarch with a, with a million kids like but that's not us so we're we're playing on expert mode ultra violence and like okay, okay why am i saying this like am i trying to like pump you up or motivational no i have nothing to say about like how this comes to you you know you probably i'm gonna assume you probably better serve with a stoic demeanor but but what's the point of this so why, why am i bringing this up because this does matter it really does must grade yourself on a curb or you will die and I, when I say die maybe maybe you're still sucking air maybe your heart and lungs are still doing something but you'll be moving around and you will be have, have condemned yourself for not being on a certain timeline and if you do that well you you fucked up we live in a serious fucking situation see all I'm telling you is just, you need to factor this into your decision making process so you know, it's fine to get married later if you have to. But, but like, what do I mean? Because listen, it's not fine. We know it's not fine. But some of you have to. You, you have to. And if you're working a shit job and you're distracted all the time by your phone, you're trying to keep up with a thousand things, I, I don't have an answer for all that. But I can tell you, go ahead and go ahead and treat yourself. Feel free to adjust your expectations. I'm just being real. You just you can, you can look at any statistic. We don't talk about these things almost ever. You know that there's there is real fucking mayhem going on in the most important parts of people's lives. But you, you can't give up. You just have to. You know. You, you, but you need to factor this into your timeline that you aren't playing in the little leagues. This is. I mean, we we are in a fucked up situation. So like, if you can scrap together some kind of family, keep it together for a few years. Like, you're the 1957 equivalent to, like, uh, you know, the Iwo, Iwo Jima guy with a flamethrower that killed 300 people and won, won seven medals of honor. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, every miniature win, every tiny win is a huge win.
you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it.
work from home has graduated gradually from a temporary station to a permanent fixture invading our homes. We stand at the precipice of the last Zoom teeny. Those after work happy hour sessions organized by the HR minded folk who had by some compulsion borne a simulacrum of a simulacrum. The after work happy hours that existed back in the days of the office were already a mimicry of camaraderie, softly coercing you to spend an awkward few hours with a coworker ditching you for compensation approximating what they should be paying everyone else sitting around the table. The soft tug of compulsion and power dynamics at work poison the majority of work friendships before they can even begin. Whenever a higher up tries to appear cool or be a friend to you, it comes off as strangely pathetic, knowing that someone who holds the power to throw your life into utter chaos in an instant is desperately seeking some approval from you. No, the only real potential of making friends at work are as equals or in being in different departments. Friendships forming in the crucible of scores of lunches together and chatting when you're looking to kill 10 to 15 minutes of someone else's time. These are all self-organizing affairs, however. When plans for socialization come from top-down, designated team-building or otherwise on-the-clock events, everyone optimizes for how they can extract the most value out of the company. Ironically, formulating a plan for stealing time or resources from your employer is usually better team-building than whatever ice-breaking game has been rigged up by management. Despite many of these interactions already feeling constructed and stilted, the Zumatini occupies a space far beyond this. In many cases, you are expected to provide your own beverages, and worse, your own time, inviting them into your own home via your webcam. No longer can genuine connections form in a room full of people drinking a few seltzers, as conversations about whatever work project still lingering from the afternoon resolves into something that resembles a real conversation. No, there is only an unappointed director of the conversation, either a senior executive or whatever hag thought this would be a fun idea of how to spend a Thursday night trapped in our homes. They lob contrived questions to people around Robin in a call and receive equally wooden responses. But it's over. No one would deign to set up a Zoom teeny these days. Employees come and go, and at best do a send-off email no one even replies to. Maybe I'm antisocial, but it is relieving in some degree to not have to hold up a false spirit of camaraderie with my coworkers anymore. I have made some great, genuine friends through it, but it was never because of team building exercises, it was in spite of it. Now, any of my work conversations are focused on the task at hand and anyone bringing up topical events makes my eyes visibly roll in the back of my head. We're here to work, push the buttons we're assigned to push, and that's it. Well, I suppose that's more depressing. At least it's more honest what work has become when it's laid bare like that, forced to confront the drudgery of it all. By the way, I was always the one to leave the happy hours first when everyone else felt too awkward to, opening the floodgates so that everyone else could bail in the next 20 minutes. You're welcome. In my experience, you know, working as an independent artist, um, you know, I've, I've had to uh, spend, you know, countless, thankless days and nights uh, doing the equivalent of being a uh, a guitar player, you know, playing for an empty bar. And you you have to absolutely love what you're doing to an almost psychotic, sociopathic degree. Like, you have to be willing to uh, say no to social outings and stuff like that that, you know, most normal people 
uh, need in order to uh, feel balanced in their existence and stuff. Um, not saying you have to be like a total like uh, gross eccentric or something like that, but you do have to make uh, considerations that most people with uh, standard like salaried or nine to five job uh, don't have to make. Michael Way, Michael Way, Michael Way, 
the one that came the other day to try to get a job, you'll never have a job. You won't keep a job, he never keeps a job, he's a serial killer. And he's a piece of shit, and he's trying to blow the fucking world up. And he's a fucking killer, and he likes to fuck prostitutes, and he's a fucking dope fiend, fucking heroin addict, fucking junkie. So, keep the motherfucker away from the fucking place, and me, and fuck Michael Ray. A fucking junkie ass fucking whore fucking fuck Michael Way. Eight six eight eight six is a fucking phone number and you can fuck off Michael Way fucking Hey yo, this is Marquis. So it's raining pretty good outside right now. So I'm going to go ahead and take a sick day. I'll come in tomorrow if it's dry. Hey, this Marquise. Man, it's looking overcast like a motherfucker out there this morning. So I ain't even going to chance it, bro. I'm going to go ahead and take a long weekend, and I'll see you on Monday. Hey, so the weatherman saying it's going to start raining around 1030. So once I finish my 15 minute, man, I'm going to go ahead and clock out. Hey, yo, this uh, Marquista door. Hey, man, if you saw the forecast this morning, you know what's up. <laughs> okay, I'll probably be back on Thursday, bro. I'll catch up with you then. All right. Hey, this Marquise. I ain't gonna make it in today because it's raining. All right, bro. I'll come in tomorrow if it's dry.
it's been about 12 years since I made my video adult movie about this experience. The title made it sound like a porno, but it was really just about the process of trying to make something that I felt proud of as an artist. Trying to follow up on earlier success, trying to make money, and thinking about how that relates to growing up. It feels ironic to revisit it because I still have a lot of the same questions about art and life, though I do feel very far away from the person I was at 30. Aside from fulfilling my childhood fantasy, when I became a stripper, I thought it might be a way to get out of debt. The Craigslist ad said you could make over $500 a night, but I never really made more than $250. And it was really hard work standing on six-inch heels for hours and pretending to feel confident. My stripper name was Lola, which I'd taken from a Fassbender movie. I was reading Herzog's journals from the making of Fitzcarraldo while I was working on my video, The Conquest of the Useless. He said that the only thing you need to make films is guts. The same impulse that drew me to stripping is also what compels me as an artist, to reveal myself and to be seen. Making that video was this really slow, arduous process of trying to figure out what I was trying to say. In some ways, it was a confrontation with my failure. There's this Franz Klein quote that has always really defined my views towards art. Do you know what creating is? It's the ability to be embarrassed. Making art often feels like wandering in the forest, not knowing where you're going or what you're doing there. But I believe that if you can withstand that uncertainty, then eventually you'll figure it out. When I was a kid, I thought I would become something when I grew up. The older I get, the more I see adulthood as a receding horizon rather than a destination. Something I reach for again and again, and as I grow closer to it, a new horizon takes its place. It sounds Sisyphusian, but it's actually a good thing to always be in development, reaching for something new. Jung said it's the privilege of a lifetime to become who you are. So if you accept that challenge, the work of that becoming is never really done. We're just going to have to call this one on, bro. I'm sorry. <laughs>